You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 2nd of March 2020 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View. Coming up today, markets bounce back a little after last week's coronavirus-related slump. My guests, Linda Yu and Yasmin Abdul-Majid, will discuss that and the day's other news, including Turkey declares war on Syria and opens its borders. Will this force the EU's hand to join the conflict? Plus, San Francisco votes on whether to tax the landlords of empty retail spaces. Also ahead, Germany's new skilled immigration law comes into effect. But how will it impact immigration into the country, particularly from outside the EU? Germany needs immigration now more than ever. Unemployment is at a near-record low. More than half of all companies say their expansion is hampered by the fact that they can't find workers to fill the jobs they need. I'm Paul Osborne. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the program. I'm joined by the economist Linda Yu, who's the author of The Great Economist, and also Yasmin Abdul-Majid, the Sudanese-Australian writer and broadcaster. Uh, We begin with the coronavirus outbreak. More than 3,000 people have now died around the world. And as governments step up their response to the spread of the virus, they're also trying to shore up the markets after their worst performance since the worldwide slump in 2008. The US Financial Reserve and the Bank of England have both said that they will take whatever measures are necessary, while Italy is promising a huge emergency aid package. But one group is warning the virus could halve global growth. Well, Linda, after last week's slump, stocks did rise a little in trading this morning. That presumably was a response to all of those reassuring central bank statements. I think there's, yes, indeed, an expectation that because so much of growth forecasts have been cut on the basis of the fact that coronavirus probably looks like it's headed towards becoming a global pandemic, which is what the uh, U.S. um, health authorities, CDC, have said. Now, if you have a growth forecast cut, then central banks, um, you know, are expected to act um, because they won't react to markets, you know, just falling. But the big caveat, I would say, is there's quite a lot of debate as to what central banks can do if the coronavirus is a supply shock. In other words, supply chains will be disrupted. Um, you know, inflation is likely to go up, especially for smaller open economies that import a lot of things. So the central banks generally don't know what to do with, quote, supply shocks. And I think this is why there's a bit of an open, I think, discussion um, that needs to be had among central bankers and economists. But certainly markets are probably looking at this and thinking, hmm, if there's a chance the world could dip into a recession, then you know, central banks surely have to act. And as we know, um, not just cutting rates, but say restarting quantitative easing cash injections, um, possible uh, for possibly central banks other than the ECB, which have already restarted that, that certainly boosts asset prices. So there's a bit of pullback there. Um, It's it's interesting, isn't it? We've been watching the spread of the virus now for a couple of months. Mm. And over the last maybe three to four weeks, seeing it start to spread from China to other countries in Southeast Asia, then into Europe, into the United States. So why suddenly last week did did the market suddenly wake up at the beginning of last week and go, oh, actually, we're really worried about this? Yeah, I think, I mean, the markets really are a reflection of how people think, right? And the reactions of individual people who, I think had seen coronavirus as maybe something limited to China or nearby. And then all of a sudden when, you know, at first it was on boats and it was um, cruises and that sort of thing. And then all of a sudden 
you started to hear stories about oh it's in it's in Italy and that's nearby and oh there's a, there's a couple of cases in the US and that that's near where I am and I think what you've got is perhaps a tipping point in people's minds about how much they need to be worried about this and all of a sudden it's not just a piece of news it's oh should I be using antiseptic on um you know on the tube or should I be wearing a face mask and it's been really interesting to see even conversations on on platforms like Twitter and, and Facebook and my own family WhatsApp groups in Sudan being like you know this is what you need to do and it's definitely moved from something that is very far away in people's mind and to be to be fairly honest um something that has perhaps reflected a bit of xenophobia it 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 has now become something oh this is a global challenge and and it is affecting individual i think the work of individual people to your point then about supply chains people can no longer people's work is being disrupted people's travel is being disrupted not only just for um holidays and so on but oh we can't go on this business trip or this conference is being cancelled i know in san francisco numerous conferences have been and so all of a sudden this is something that's affecting people's lives and is a reflection of the frictionless nature of um global economies but also how quickly uh, that that can reach a tipping point i mean it's fascinating we were um i was on uh, twitter earlier and looking at uh, all these stories of toilet paper running out in um in shops in australia and how fascinating is it that people react in quite strange ways i think to 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 fear and my person like my personal view is well actually i'm not really sure how how worried i should be what is the right amount of concern is should i be extra cautious should i be not cautious at all is this something that the media is hyping up or is this something that i you know should i be really worried about my grandma or you know my family friend that has pre-existing conditions and so on i think there is there's so much going on um and a lot of a lot of concern and perhaps not as much grounding and all of that means people there is instability in things like markets And Linda, it's it's a difficult, difficult one for politicians, isn't it? Because on the one hand, if you look, say, at the British politicians over the weekend on the media, are saying everyone should carry on as normal, don't worry, just wash your hands a bit more, and stay at home if you don't feel very well. But at the same time, not ruling out things like closing schools with a huge economic impact that would have, or banning sporting events, or even potentially. Uh, banning travel between certain cities in in the way that you saw happen in China when, when the outbreak arrived in, in in Wuhan that's a really difficult line for politicians to walk isn't it reassurance and preparedness yeah and i think um you know part of the challenge with something like this is that there's a lot of unknown so i think governments always have a worst case scenario i think matt hancock the health secretary said over the weekend that you know you plan for the worst you work towards the best i think that's reassuring um that there are and he wouldn't rule out anything like having to potentially shut down cities half the population working from home but i see those as pretty standard contingency measures the the thing is if they didn't have something like that and you should be worried but telling people obviously you know is how you tell people and i think having a realistic assessment that coronavirus has spread a lot um, we're not as bad as italy at the moment but clearly it's resulted in um you know it's everywhere and uh there's an instance now in the uk um of somebody who's gotten it without having traveled to the uh 
you know, the most affected countries in East Asia. So which means, you know, by the definition of a global pandemic, it probably is spreading and people should take precautions. Um, so I find it reassuring that the government is willing to share their contingency plans. And, you know, half of us have to work from home. Half of us will have to work from home. And um, it's not the worst thing in the world, <laughs> right? Like, well, no, I mean, once you strip out the things like, you know, sort of schools closing and things like that, and suddenly you're you're working from home, but you're yeah. also looking your after pajamas. children. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, yes, that's which, it. <laughs> those two things are usually incompatible. Yeah. Um, but, but it's interesting is that, that we're being told we've got to be very careful and there is a lot of panic, as you were saying mm. a moment ago, but... Also, for the vast majority of people who were to contract this virus, it will be no worse than a cold. They will yes. recover. It does seem to primarily target people over the age of 60 or 70. And so it feels like, to a certain extent, the biggest impact, particularly after last week, is probably financial rather than health. Right. And and to again, to go to that point about supply chains and so on, I think that is really interesting because there is only so much you can do. And this is not my area of expertise, but it appears that if the challenges physically things cannot be moved or physically there are challenges how much can you change with financial instruments to to speed things up if borders are closed um what can what can what, what can you do with a financial instrument to change that and i think that'll be really interesting i i don't know and perhaps Linda, you do where previous instances of this sort of thing have happened and what the responses have been because it might be because of the nature of, of the or the global nature of supply chains, it's much more difficult when there is an interruption like this than perhaps 50 years ago. Hmm. Yeah, there's definitely a lot more um, uh, linkages. But I think the main, you know, the main issue is pretty much all countries are affected, except for Antarctica, I think, is the only continent that hasn't spread to. It doesn't have the same disruption everywhere, but if you were to think about what it might look like in, say, three to four weeks' time, which is roughly the time frame the American Treasury Secretary, um, you know, is looking at, it's hard to say that even if a company were to divert their supply chain and resource their production, that the new place, which is expensive to do, the new place wouldn't have... Um, the same disruptions. And this is why if it is a supply side disruption, then I think it is going to have to just be uh, something you weather, which is hard. Mm. Um, Central banks can do a bit. Fiscal policy can do a bit. Um, But, you know, given the, the complete... We don't have many global pandemics, so the complete uncertainty around Mm. this, I just don't think anybody can really confidently say for sure whether or not they should do X or Y. I think we'll just have to see how the economy, you know, fares. But this is why there's a lot of estimates that we could, and I say could, be in for a global recession. Um, Again, at this point, we'll just have to see how how far it spreads. Yeah. Linda, you and Yasmin Abdul-Majid will be back with you in just a moment. First, though... Monocle's Carlotta Rebello has some of the day's other top stories. Thanks, Paul. The former mayor of Indiana, Pete Buttigieg, has announced he is ending his presidential campaign. The 38-year-old became the first openly gay candidate from a major party when he announced he was running for the Democratic nomination. However, his campaign has struggled in recent weeks. Tokyo and Beijing have agreed to delay China's state visit to Japan. It comes as the two countries continue to battle the outbreak of coronavirus. The trip by Chinese President Xi Jinping had originally been planned for early April, but is now expected to be put on hold until the outbreak is brought under control.
And finally, Australia's independent transport advisory body has announced that state and federal governments should be working flat out in order to enhance the existing Sydney to Canberra rail link. Those are the headlines. Now back to you, Paul. Carlotta, thank you. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Paul Osborne. With me are Linda Yu and Yasmin Abdul-Majid. Turkey has formally confirmed the start of its fourth military operation in Syria in as many years, launching hundreds of strikes on Syrian targets after 34 Turkish soldiers were killed on Thursday. While it is militarily engaged in Syria, Turkey has opened the gates to Europe, prompting a fresh crisis on the Greek border, where authorities have used tear gas to try to stop people from crossing over. Uh, Yasmin, you have thousands of people trapped on the border. You have Greece refusing to accept them. Turkey, meanwhile, saying it can't cope on its own with more than four million refugees. And it seems encouraging more of those refugees to head to the border. Yeah, it's it's such an intractable conflict, Syria, isn't it? And I, I mean, I think any expert in this space will tell you that these are challenges that no matter what, like you might change one thing, you might do one thing and you're not, you, you won't necessarily be sure how that'll affect everything else. I mean, Turkey has something like 3.6 million Syrians um, who've come in over the last uh, almost decade now and had made the agreement in 2016 with Europe, with the EU, to say we won't, we will um, hold these refugees, these Syrian refugees in um and, and the and the European Union will provide them with, I think it was six million euros. Um, six billion. Six, six, billion. six billion. Sorry. Yes. The B is important there. <laughs> and however, that is a lot of people. And Turkey is now saying, well, we've reached capacity. And obviously, what happened in Idlib meant that another million people moved out. Around a million people moved out. And Turkey is now saying, well, we don't have the capacity to deal with this. And so the challenge for for Europe is, well. What, what are our options? Because these people aren't necessarily, they're not going to disappear. So they're either going to stay in Turkey and Turkey is going to open its borders and, and, and Europe will have to deal with another sort of crisis, as we're calling it. Or you somehow get involved again in Syria, which is not a situation that's going to have an easy solution. Um, and, and, I, I, and obviously, uh, Erdogan is going to Russia, I think it's tomorrow, um, to meet with Putin to sort of say, uh, because obviously um, the the challenge in Idlib is that it's it is a Russian backed conflict with tur- with the Turkish forces and so Erdogan has said look we don't want a uh, a conflict with Moscow like that's that's not what we're here for but obviously but you you can't sort of deny what's happening on the ground i honestly i don't know i think it's a real challenge and and what i think you're going to find going back to what we were talking about just earlier if you've got an economy that's dealing with coronavirus that's dealing with a global pandemic and then you've got a whole hundreds of thousands of syrian refugees arriving on the border again that's going to be a situation that's going to be very challenging for the European leaders to deal with, especially because they're already having an argument over their budgets. Um, they're already dealing with trying to somehow um, deal with Britain leaving. And so it may not be a priority for them, but it's going to have to be. It's not something that you can sort of put on the side because these refugees and asylum seekers are on the border. And this is, this is the, the, the bind, isn't it, that the EU finds itself in, Linda, that on the one hand, you've got these people who are trapped between Turkey saying it can't cope with any more people and the EU thinking about the political consequences of another large influx of refugees from Syria. Yes, yeah, so Greece has already said they suspended asylum applications, so there's already beginning to be um, a you know a reaction when I expect other countries to follow. But it is a bind, and I think one of the most um, troubling things... Um, 
about all of this is refugees are refugees. They leave their homes because they have no choice. And there is actually a humanitarian um, argument um, for giving greater assistance to refugees. The issue with the European Union is, you know, a few years ago, they did open their borders and Germany actually took in, I think, a million mm. um, refugees at the time. And it caused a political backlash. Um, and as we see all around the world, there is an anti, I call it an anti because it's just anti-something, anti-immigration, anti-establishment, anti-capitalism. There's, there's a whole feeling of things are changing and people are unhappy with that. But thinking back to what happened a few years ago, the European countries, essentially the richer ones, agreed to give money to the less well-off nations if they would be the ones to take in the refugees. I wouldn't be surprised if there was something like that again um, because of the political nature of, of, um, of the backlash against Migration and migration is much broader than refugees, um, but it is something that if they don't come up with something, um, I think it just makes the situation worse at the border. And then the problem gets even more difficult to deal with down the line. There were reports over the weekend of um, deaths at the border already between Syria and Turkey, and I think this is going to be something they need to get a hold of. They can move away mm. from coronavirus, Brexit, uh, budget disputes, and, uh, you know, the issue of who's really running Germany with Merkel losing her protege. But aside from all that... <laughs> she should have plenty of, plenty of time to deal with it. Yeah. Well, meanwhile, in San Francisco, uh, voters are going to be asked to decide on a, how to deal with a problem that plagues high streets around the world, that of empty storefronts. They are voting on Tuesday to decide whether to tax the landlords of empty retail spaces. If it goes through, San Francisco will become the first city to impose such a tax. Uh, Yasmin, it would kick in when a shop's empty for six months, so it wouldn't be immediate. Mm. But but according to the authority in San Francisco, the aim is actually they don't want to levy the tax. They want the threat of the tax to encourage landlords to lower rents and fill the empty shops. Tax is an interesting one because... in it can be a very blunt instrument to sort of create change, but it can also have impacts that aren't necessarily related to the thing that you're trying to change. And with something like this, when you when you dig a little deeper, the, the, the question one wants to ask is, well, why are these stores laying empty? Is it because um, the rent is too high? Is it because of where these stores actually are? Is it because the bureaucracy around getting permits and so on is, is too difficult? And I think that is a much more interesting way to go about it. I can under, I can definitely understand um, this being an easy thing to sell to and an easy thing to sort of an easier thing to get through Parliament to sort of say or the council to say, well, look, these stores are empty and we don't want them to be empty. So let's tax them if they're empty. Um, and we'll, there are exceptions for you know, for various things. However, is like the other question to then ask is, well, when people when this has been done around the world in other cases, has that actually had an impact? Has that meant that people are actually um, bringing people into their stores. have, And the case is not always, it's not, it, it doesn't pan out that way. Sometimes it's because, you know, a place like San Francisco has an incredibly high homeless challenge, homeless people challenge. And so a lot of these store owners have said, well, hey, we've tried to get, we've tried to rent out our places. However, there are, you know, there are, um, challenges in the area that we're in that mean that people don't want to rent here and so on. So I do think that 
although this might sound like a, a straightforward solution, what you actually need is a much more structural and systemic um, look at what the challenges are. It's something, Linda, that was looked at on the domestic property front, wasn't it, in the UK a while ago. It was suggested by the Labour Party that they would want to tax people for keeping properties unoccupied as a way of dealing with the need for housing. But as we were saying, it's quite a blunt instrument. It is. And actually, the UK has a, a similar challenge in that high street shops. Um, there are some vacant shops on the high street. And so the the push to fill those shops is around cutting business rates. So this is a tax, obviously, that, um, you know, that would a physical store owner would have to pay rather than, say, tax the landlord to uh, to force them to, to rent it out because there's a supply issue, there's a demand issue. So one of the challenges in San Francisco, and I would say it's probably more acute there because that's the kind of epicenter of the Silicon Valley, is that bricks and mortar stores just find it difficult to compete with online sellers. Now, the competition obviously has uh, two sides because online sellers like Amazon can also do offline and they struggle with that. So there's something about us all moving to buy things online, things get delivered very quickly, it's putting pressure on the high street. The economic cycle isn't at a very good point. And what is the structure of demand uh, that a business has to face if they decide to to open up? That does need to be looked at. It's not just um, the supply side, which is what a you know a tax on empty homes or a tax on empty shops would be doing. And you know my thinking about this country cutting business rates would probably have a bigger effect. Um, of allowing smaller businesses to be able to afford premises. And that probably would help um, the local high street uh, more than a generalized tax on landlords. Um, but, you know, what I mentioned about online sales, that's an underlying structural change. Mm. So, I, you know, that's going to have to require a lot of adjustment. And I imagine this is just the first of many we're going to see as we all sort of veer towards not just buying things online. You can try things on online now. You can have, you know, if you buy clothes, there's like virtual dummies. I think they're called avatars. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of things which are changing online. You can do everything from the comfort of your home and get it delivered fairly quickly. That's going to change. Linda Yu and Yasmin Abdul-Majid, thank you both very much. In just a moment, Germany's new skilled immigration law comes into effect. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. Now, Germany's Skilled Immigration Act came into effect this Sunday. It's a practical and symbolic step to open up the country to non-EU migration at a time when many other countries are getting more restrictive. Here's Monocle's foreign editor, Christopher Semak. At a time when many countries are closing their borders, and I don't mean because of coronavirus... It's worth recognizing that Germany has taken a significant step in the other direction. This month, the Skilled Immigration Act comes into effect after more than a year of legislative drafts and sometimes contentious debate in Berlin. The law's aim is to encourage more non-EU immigration into the country, but it's worth noting as much for its symbolic power as for any practical steps to unlock immigration. Effectively, the law for the first time declares Germany a nation that is open to immigrants. That's because it ends a requirement for companies to prove that a German or EU citizen can't do the job before hiring someone outside the continent. Beyond that, it offers foreign students the opportunity to spend six months looking for a job in the country. And also, unlike a similar recent proposal in the UK, it doesn't apply merely to those industries that face worker shortages. 
Setting aside the social stigmas and rising support for anti-immigration parties, it's worth remembering that the economic rationale for such a law is clear. Germany needs immigration now more than ever. Unemployment is at a near-record low. More than half of all companies say their expansion is hampered by the fact that they can't find workers to fill the jobs they need. Its population is set to decline and get older. So economically, there's a simple case to allow more immigrants. But let's also take a moment to applaud a politically courageous step, one that represents a practical and necessary opening in this increasingly nationalistic society we live in. Monocle's foreign editor, Christopher Sermak, there. That's it for today. Monocle's House View was produced by Carlotta Rabella, researched by Yulene Goffa and Madeleine Pollard. Our studio managers are Leon and Christy Evans. At 2000 UK time, there's a new edition of The Menu. Monocle's House View returns at the same time on Tuesday, 1800 in London, 10am in Los Angeles. From me, Paul Oswald, thanks for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>